But first, in the House of Representatives, a big focus on military pay and benefits in the 2024 budget cycle. The House's DOD appropriations and authorization bills both have provisions that would boost pay and allowances in significant ways, especially for the most junior military service members. Meanwhile, the House Armed Services Committee is standing up a brand new panel to focus exclusively on military quality of life issues. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has a roundup. All military members are expected to get a 5.2% pay increase next year. The president's budget and the House appropriations and authorization bills each agree on that figure. That raise alone would be the biggest percentage increase uniform members have seen since 2002. But the current draft of the House's defense appropriations measure would go even further, giving additional salary bumps to most junior enlisted military members. Those additional raises are targeted mainly at new recruits. The rate for the E-1 pay grade, for example, would go up by an additional 36% to $2,600 a month. E-2s would also get a more than 30% bump. Meanwhile, the House's version of the 2024 defense authorization bill would create what lawmakers are calling an economic conditions bonus. That provision wouldn't set a specific salary increase, but would give the Secretary of Defense new authorities to give additional monthly stipends to junior members of the armed forces. The focus on the entry level of the military's pay scale is somewhat in line with DOD's current personnel picture. Retention is still high, but recruiting remains a significant challenge for most of the services, especially the Army. Army Secretary Christine Warmoth told reporters this week, recruiting remains a dark cloud on the horizon. On the positive side, we are doing better now in June of 2023 than we did in June of 2022. A lot of that is the good work that we've done in the future soldier prep course. We're, you know, we're going into the summer months, which are historically our better recruiting months. So I hope we'll continue to see good news coming out in the next few months. Uh, I do think that our recruiter productivity is increasing, and that's a positive thing. And I give a lot of credit to General Davis at USAREC and his team. You know, they've been doing a lot to uh, revamp the training we're giving our recruiters, to retrain some of our recruiters who, who aren't necessarily produced in the way that we'd likely like them to do, and, and to really hold our recruiters accountable. And I think that's starting to pay off in terms of seeing an increase in our productivity rate. And we really need every single one of our great recruiters to you know, be as productive as possible, obviously, given the challenge we're facing. Still, Warmoth says Army officials strongly doubt they'll meet this year's recruiting goal of 65,000 new soldiers. We knew that that was a stretch goal. So I don't think we're going to meet that. You know, and, and, and again, let's put that in context. Last year, we had a goal of 60,000 and we fell short by 15,000. So we were very ambitious in setting a 65,000 goal. But like I said, we are, uh, as of today, you know, uh, we have we have more recruits than we did at this time last year. I think, you know, the, the May and early June contracts per day numbers look good. You know, how much of that is about the traditionally better recruiting season in summer? How much of that is about, you know, things we've done to help ourselves? Some of both, I think. Um, but again, I think that the increase in recruiter productivity, which is a newer phenomenon, is a very good sign. The House's draft 2024 NDAA would make more compensation changes that go beyond basic pay. One provision would remove troops' basic allowance for housing from the calculation that determines whether they qualify for DOD's new basic needs allowance, making it much more likely that more members would get that monthly supplement. Those payments are designed to make sure each service member's household income is at least 130% of the federal poverty line. 
Another provision would remove the requirement the DOD calculate junior members' housing allowances based on annual local rent surveys. Since those surveys often lag behind actual housing prices, officials say the change would make it much easier for DOD to quickly increase the allowances in housing markets where rent costs are skyrocketing in any given year. Indiana Congressman Jim Banks, the chairman of the House Military Personnel Subcommittee, says the changes are all about recruiting and retention. The military personnel mark was developed in a bipartisan manner and includes member priorities focused on taking care of service members and their families to ensure they are prepared to carry out, without distraction, any mission they are called upon to execute. The mark builds on our continuous efforts to develop legislation that improves the lives of our military families. In this year of the 50th anniversary of the all-volunteer force, this mark continues the development of focused policy that recruits, retains, and provides for those that are willing to put service before self. The subcommittee's draft provisions also try to address the military services shortages in on-base child care. One provision would boost the government's share of child care funding by 15%. Another would expand an existing DOD pilot program that offers fee assistance for in-home child care to four more bases. Another would require DOD to set up a website so that military families can see the current waiting lists for all of the military's child care centers. Andy Kim is the ranking Democrat in the Military Personnel Subcommittee. DOD operates the largest employer-sponsored child care program in the country, which is essential to overall military, uh, mission readiness, retention, and recruitment for the military. So we're increasing funding for child care programs. The MARC also expands existing child care pilots to increase the number of options available. We are also encouraging the department to look outside the gates for innovative solutions on how to better meet the child care needs of military families. Our service members and their families make considerable sacrifices for our nation. We must continue to our commitment to them and their families. Meanwhile, the Armed Services Committee is standing up a new temporary panel that's designed to focus exclusively on quality of life issues. That panel includes 13 members of Congress that will hold hearings over the next year and eventually produce a written report. House officials say that report will inform more changes in the fiscal 2025 NDAA. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. 
Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama 
because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. You know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again.
And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.